not had a voice until now? Have we been discriminated against for so long that men should step out of the way? Is that just writing wrong? Did feminism mean well, but went wrong somewhere along the way? What will happen to girls when they grow up hearing, you can do anything you want, you go girl. What is the minefield waiting for our sons? What should I tell my daughter about feminism? Today I want to share the work of someone I admire a great deal, Janice Fiamengo. She was a tenured professor in English literature at the University of Saskatchewan and Ottawa until retirement in 2019. She has done extensive research and work on women's writings and history of feminism. She's published several books on these issues and has spoken out as a men's advocate since 2012. She's been protested and cancelled, and her YouTube series, The Fiamengo File, from 2015 was permanently banned, but she redid it as The Fiamengo File 2.0, The History of Feminism, which I heartily recommend that you go and check out. But she has also received very, very positive feedback, and she has touched a lot of people's hearts, uh, including my own. I started watching Janice Fiamengo in my maternity leave with my first baby. And uh, back then I was also, I was still a feminist and uh, her work made me change some very profound attitudes and changed our whole family's life for the better. So thank you for that. And I'm so excited to have you with me today. Oh my goodness, Hannah, what a very nice introduction. That's very generous. Thank you. I feel really pleased. Before we dive into everything, I really want to ask you, why not just enjoy a very conflict-free retirement where you could just sit and read your books and uh, be left in peace? Well, I am thinking of doing that eventually. <laughs> it's definitely very tempting. And uh, in fact, just this last week, I was reading a great deal of feminist theory, uh, radical feminism from the 1970s. And then I got into intersectional feminism from the 1980s because I'm, I'm, I'm writing a course that I hope will become part of Jordan Peterson's online uh, university called Peterson Academy. Oh, wow. And uh, so I'm, I've been really immersing myself some in, in works that I've read in the past, but hadn't read you know, for 25 years and needed to refresh and a few I hadn't ever read and had always meant to. And it is, I find it depressing, the level of, um, it seems to me, moral blindness. Um, recently, I was reading um, a memoir by a feminist named Phyllis Chesler, a fascinating book about her experience of feminism in the 1970s, that which was really the you know, the big first decade of second wave feminism. And she was talking about all the acrimony mm -hmm. amongst feminists, the backbiting, the cliques that formed, the personal betrayals, the accusations, the uh, competition for victim status, and the number of women who developed mental illnesses, some who committed suicide or attempted suicide, some were committed to mental institutions, uh, many were quite miserable during this period, and she admits that feminism 
attracted many women with mental illness that some of the luminaries of the movement, including Kate Millett and Andrea Dworkin and Shulamith Firestone, suffered from mental distress and caused distress to many other people. And yet she says that feminism isn't crazy and feminist ideas aren't crazy. Um, but I find them quite crazy making. And uh, it's astounding to read feminist tracks expressing deep animus towards men and the desire to tear the whole of Western civilization down and rebuild it allegedly in a better way. Uh, and, and also to admit that there has never been a feminist utopia and that often women are quite cruel to other women, to children, to men, and yet to have at the end, not a recognition that women are human, mm -hmm. <laughs> just like everybody else, just like men, flawed, capable of terrible actions as well as very good actions. Not, not that admission, but in the end, the, the, um, the certainty that the answer to all these problems will be, must be more feminism. Right. <laughs> and, and always that with the implication that women are morally superior. Mm -hmm. I find that depressing and astounding. And so I do look forward one day to not doing this anymore. But um, I guess I, it, you know, it is something that's really close to my heart. So I want to keep on for a while longer. I'd like to write a book. Mm -hmm. I am working on a book on the history of feminist thought. Sounds very interesting. Um, since you already mentioned animus towards men, can we jump in there and talk a bit about what it was? What Because a lot of people say, well, they weren't all like that. It wasn't always, you know, meant to be, right? The feminism is good, but... Yes. What are yes. your thoughts on that? I once, um, you know, I, I was a feminist originally, of course, um, when I was doing my PhD and and uh, even in the early years of my teaching, although I wouldn't have defined myself primarily as a feminist, but I still was interested in uh, gender as a category of analysis, as feminists like to say. And yeah, I... Um, I don't think I ever thought that feminism had specifically gone wrong at a particular point, but that is the myth that we right. hear all the time. The first mm -hmm. wave of feminism, mm -hmm. that was very that good. Was. Those, those women just wanted equality mm -hmm. and those women simply wanted to have their, their chance to contribute to their society, mm -hmm. which of course I believe in. I don't believe anyone should be prevented from making their contribution on the grounds of sex or race or mm -hmm. their inborn characteristic. Well, when but, do you think that it started? Well, um, I think that yeah, my argument is that, unfortunately, this idea that the early feminists were good-hearted women who simply wanted equality, unfortunately, that isn't true. It may well have been that there were individual feminists who felt no dislike of men, but the movement as a whole always was a very angry movement. It always expressed the conviction 
that men from the beginning of time had really done nothing other than oppress and subjugate women for their own pleasure and profit, mm -hmm. that men hated women, that men feared women. It's right there in, in 1848, if you go back to what is sometimes considered the first women's convention and the first declaration of women's rights at the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention, mm -hmm. when Elizabeth Cady Stanton and a series of Quaker women friends of hers penned a declaration of sentiments. Their thesis in that declaration was that the history of mankind is the history of repeated injuries and usurpation on the part of man toward women having as its object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over her. And then that's, you know, it goes on from there in that fervid kind of manner. It, it doesn't admit that men ever acted to protect women and children. It does not admit that any aspect of the building of civilization, any aspect of the gender order as it developed, developed naturally because of men's and women's different capabilities and roles that it developed in order to protect women and children and to provide for them, or that it developed according to the basic, you know, biologically based natures mm -hmm. of men and women. It did not admit that mm -hmm. at all. And I have not found any significant statement by a feminist since that time, or even earlier, if you go back to 1792, mm -hmm. Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Woman, it also breathes the conviction that women have been oppressed and oppressed only by men, always denied their natural rights, always mm -hmm. treated with contempt, always treated as the other, as Simone de Beauvoir declared in 1949. Uh, it's just there in every phase of the feminist movement deep anger, a special mm -hmm. loathing and repulsion for male sexuality, a uh, conviction that the family is the site of women's oppression. Mm -hmm. Early feminists, you know, back in the 1850s used phrases like sex slavery to mm. describe the position of women in the family and in marriage in particular, of course. And, um, and also this conviction, as I say, of, of, the, of female moral supremacism, that if women ran the world, women would do a much, much better job, no recognition that men have ever acted with benevolent intentions towards women. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, quite, it's quite something. So and, and, you know, overt calls for male extermination Extermination. Yes, amongst feminists who are still celebrated today as leaders in the feminist movement. Mm -hmm. If you take a women's studies course, you may well read a widely admired writer named Valerie Solanus, who wrote something called The Scum Manifesto, published in 1967. Scum uh, stood for the Society for Cutting Up Men. Wow. And she called for women to exterminate men. Mm -hmm. And she said that men were eaten up with hatred and envy of women. And because they recognized that women were superior, women had every right to hate men because men were inferior and brutish. 
She said that women had a prior right to existence over men, just as human beings have a prior right to existence over dogs. And she said that men were such sick, miserable individuals that eliminating them was a righteous and a good act. And now, these writings was, are taught. The, that's yes, what these, it's based writers, on from yes, these, they're, they're these women. Yeah. Um, I was just recently reading Mary Daly's book, Gyne Ecology, the Metaethics of Radical Feminism. Mary Daly was a professor of um, religious philosophy and theology at Boston College, a Catholic college. She was employed there for many decades before she was finally forced to retire because she wouldn't allow male students to take her upper level, upper, uh, upper level classes. She, in that book, which also asserts immeasurable female superiority to men and actually advocates female separatism, she thought women could only thrive if they lived completely independently of men. She cites Valerie Solanus as a particularly astute and insightful commentator on the nature of maleness. Uh, Valerie Solanus actually put her exterminationist views into practice. She mm -hmm. tried to murder Andy Warhol and his manager and an art critic who were with him. She did actually shoot Andy Warhol a number no of times. Yes, with a 32 caliber pistol, she shot him and uh, he almost died. He was pronounced dead at the scene, but he was revised. Uh, the bullets that she fired into him pierced various internal organs, and he had to wear a kind of uh, one of those- Like a like girdle? Corset. Yeah, or a girdle oh. to keep his organs in place for the rest of his life. He, he was terrified nice. for the rest of his life. Oh. Uh, as a result of this near-death experience. Now, mm. Valerie Solanus was mentally ill when mm. she did this, but feminists have never expressed any particular concern about the direct relationship between her calls for the extermination of men and her actual extermination attempt. Uh, she's been celebrated. There's an admiring biography of her by a woman named Brianna Fawes. Um, she, she is you know, taught admiringly. The book, The Scum Manifesto, was reissued not too long ago with a very admiring introduction by mm. a feminist professor in the United States named Professor Avital Ronell. Mm. Uh, so, you know, she's considered a heroine of the movement. And I could, you know, I could spend the whole next yeah. hour boring you <laughs> with uh, more, you know, the other, other feminists who have also called for the reduction of the male population. Sally Miller Gearhart is another one. And these are, these are not just, you know, crazed individuals in a dark corner of the internet. And this is the thing that strikes me as very significant, that feminists are always telling us that there's a whole bunch of misogyny out there. And it's true. You can find expressions of hatred of women mm -hmm. on the dark corners of the internet. But these are not celebrated individuals. We do not have courses in philosophy in which Elliot Rogers crazed rantings. That was the, the man who killed six people in Isla Vista, California, some years ago. Um, we do not, he, he had a manifesto 
about his sad life that he put up on the internet. We do not teach the ravings of his hate-filled mind as mm. interesting, you know, philosophical thought it, as we do with similar feminist ravings. We do not yeah. have male professors at university going on the going on Twitter to tell us how much they hate women. Mm. Uh, as as feminist professors right. often, a big do, difference. Yeah. often do. I mean, kill all men is a popular hashtag that many prominent feminist leaders are quite happy to put out there. Uh, Clementine Ford, an Australian feminist, commented during the coronavirus epidemic that the coronavirus wasn't killing men fast enough. Mm. A professor named Christine Fair at Georgetown University tweeted out her desire for the deaths of all those who supported Brett Kavanaugh during the hearings, the, the Senate yeah. hearings for the Supreme Court nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. She said that all, she wished death on all those who supported him, and she hoped that their bodies would be desecrated, their genitals mutilated, and fed to pigs. That's a, a, a cool. professor at a university, imagine being a young man or even just a young conservative yeah. in her classes. She claims, yeah. of course, that she teaches everybody in a very fair manner. There's another mm -hmm. professor named Susanna Walters at Northeastern University in Boston, I believe, who wrote an article in the Washington Post a couple of years ago called Why Can't We Hate Men? And it was perfectly serious, not a satirical article talking about how women have every right to hate men. And that has been a dominant strain in feminist thought from Robin Morgan and Simone de Beauvoir and Kate Millett right up until mm -hmm. the present. And, and uh, so I find that staggering. And, right. uh, and unfortunately, there is no point at which one can say up until here, feminism was decent mm -hmm. and it was just and it went wrong at this point. No, it was always so angry and so convinced that men are an inferior species of being that I just simply don't think it can ever be reformed. Mm -hmm. So uh is there a pattern among these women, these feminist, uh, these mothers of, of feminism in their personal lives? You know, did they have kids? Because this hatred of men, did that also show in their in their personal lives? Well, like that that is a very interesting question. And I would say that, no, it, it, there isn't a very clear pattern, although it is true that a number of prominent feminists never had children. For instance, uh, Virginia Woolf, uh, Simone de Beauvoir hated the idea of motherhood. She thought it was disgusting. She has, has a large chapter in her book, The Second Sex, about um, women who loathed their children, particularly their sons, and loathed the experience of motherhood. Uh, Kate Millett didn't have children. Um, there, you know, there are a number of prominent feminists who consciously rejected the idea of the family. They wanted to destroy the family and, and they hated the idea of, of having children. There's a very strong lesbian separatist mm -hmm. strain within feminism as well. But 
No, I couldn't say that overall that is the case. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was the radical leader of the American women's movement from that time, 1848, the Seneca Falls Convention, you know, right up until the end of the 19th century, she ad advocated free love. She advocated making divorce um, just a simple matter of dissolving a legal contract. She thought that people should change their, their partners as often as they felt like it and seemed to have no concern for the children mm -hmm. of these rapidly shifting, <laughs> kaleidoscopically yeah. shifting uh, um, romantic liaisons. She had many children and um, seems to have had a generally amicable mm -hmm. relationship with her husband. So uh, I, I think it's difficult to say mm -hmm. that there's, you know, I, and I think this is something that we, we tend to want to look for some kind of explanation. I've often uh, had conversations with people who are exploring feminism saying that, you know, is it because these women had the experience of oppression? Uh, what, were, what was their relationship with their father like? Did they get the idea that their father would have preferred to have had a son rather than a daughter? And did that then generate, mm -hmm. you know, resentment or, or anxiety? And I have not been able to find a, you know, a, a through line in that no. way. Okay. I, I really haven't. Uh, the circumstances of individual feminist leaders and feminist adherents are as different as mm. all of the women out there. Mm. And uh, the only thing that I would say that many of them share in common is the victim mindset. Mm -hmm. I think, I think, and I think there is a kind of mindset in many women and in some men as well, but I think it is maybe something that, that women have a, a, a greater tendency to experience, which is this uh, almost enjoyment of seeing oneself as victimized. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think it's a personality type. There's, right. a, there's, a, there's been a paper published not too long ago in 2020, I think, by some researchers talking about the 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 per, it, they call it the tendency to interpersonal victimhood as a personality type, not really a mental disorder or anything like that, but just a, you know, a way of thinking. And, and it involves feeling that oneself is a victim and you don't ha necessarily have to have had any kind of trauma or experience of injustice to develop this kind of personality type. But you, you, you feel that you've been particularly mistreated and mm -hmm. you've, you've experienced injustice. You want people to recognize that. Yeah. And it gives you a sense of moral innocence. You, you know, you haven't done wrong to others, but others have done wrong to you. And then what that ends up doing, that becomes the ground of your identity. You ruminate on it. Everything is filtered through that framework. And you, as a result, you feel more empathy towards other people who suffer in the same way. So you identify strongly with others in your group who have yeah. experienced the same injustice, but you have a, a deeply reduced empathy yeah. for anyone who is outside your group. Right. And in fact, your empathy is so reduced that even if you're presented with evidence that that group or individuals in that group have also suffered in different kinds of ways, you don't see it, you do not recognize it, it's nothing 
comparable mm. to the, the suffering you've experienced. And you will begin to feel that you, you feel no moral responsibility to care about those others. And you even begin to feel that aggression towards them, even violence towards them is justified because of the terrible things that they have allegedly done to your group. And I really do see that. That to mm -hmm. me is the unifying strain in right. feminist ideology, many other ideologies as well, but, but feminist ideology is the one that I've really looked into. And I see that so strongly, the inability, even if presented with evidence that, look, these men are also suffering or right. you know, the, the, these individuals have experienced terrible things or have done good for you, but there's that refusal to see that other person as fully human. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you mentioned earlier divorce, and I wanted to ask about the family breakdown that we, that we see now. What do you think that has to do with feminism or can we blame feminism for some of that? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. I wouldn't say we could blame feminism for, for mm -hmm. divorce in any one-to-one -one way, but it certainly does seem that the whole structure of family law has mm -hmm. been deeply influenced by feminist assumptions about what is owed women mm -hmm. in general, you know, by men, by the assumption about women's suffering in marriage, the destruction of the family is a key tenet of much feminist thought, uh, if not the absolute destruction of the family, certainly it's reordering to free women right. from what are seen as burdens that women solely bear, whether that's the emotional labor of, you know, looking after the uh, uh, well-being of, of children and and the mm -hmm. father of the family, or, or whether it's the unpaid labor, uh, so-called, that women perform in the home, uh, there is that sense that women are uniquely burdened by family responsibilities within, within the home. Um, so I think that, you know, that mm -hmm. the stoking of resentment, the conviction that women have always given more than men, in every sphere of human society, but especially in the family. I do think that plays a huge right. role in the fact that, I mean, how else can you really explain the fact that, you know, marriage is dissolved um, in cases where, where a divorce is sought, it's 75% mm -hmm. women who are initiating the, the divorces. And I think that, you know, the, the, the sense of resentment and grievance, the conviction that one is owed something right. is, that, that does come from feminism. And of course, you know, in, in material terms, feminism has had its effect on family law in that we now live in a situation where um, a man can find himself essentially unilaterally divorced. He doesn't yeah. want the marriage to end. He may be quite happy to have it keep going or he wants to work on the relationship but he finds himself divorced he yeah. finds himself ejected from the family home still forced to pay the mortgage on that home which he's now no longer allowed to enter unable to see the children that he still is forced to pay for 
yeah. and forced under penalty of going to prison. And we don't know how many men are in prison now because of non-payment of child support and alimony forced to pay for a woman that he will never perhaps see again and who doesn't care for him or look after him in, in any way. Uh, it's certainly a system that favors women heavily and is a incentive, I think you could even say, to dissolving marriages in cases where the woman simply has grown tired yeah. of a husband. He, uh, and I think, you know, all of us, mm -hmm. of course, understand why laws are created to protect women and children from abuse. But we have now defined abuse so elastically that nearly any behavior on the part of the man in the family can mm. be seen as psychological or financial abuse. And, um, you know, and we're so concerned and we have allowed that concern to overturn uh, due process of law and the presumption of innocence so that all it takes if a woman decides she wants to have nothing more to do with her ex-husband and she doesn't even want him involved in her children's lives anymore. All she has to do is make an allegation of some sort. If she says that he has ever threatened her and the children, if she says that she suspects he sexually abused one of their children, if she says he physically abused her or her yeah. children, there doesn't have to be any evidence. There is no due process for him. He is not presumed innocent. Her word alone can result in that man being barred from seeing his children, perhaps for the rest of his life, or certainly for a, a you know, serious number of years. Um, you know, it, it's a mm. terrible problem. Right. Um, it certainly makes the institution of marriage very, very fragile indeed. Right. But what I, what I always hear is that if these no-fault divorce laws, they were created to sort of save women uh, out of very abusive relationships, marriages where they were stuck, and that that was a, that was a net positive thing. How, how abused, how, how much were they suffering before? Well, this is, uh, it's difficult to determine that um, because, of course, we may hear about certain cases. We don't know how general those types of cases were. The idea that um, women were the property of their husbands and had absolutely no rights within marriage is a common feminist myth. And it's actually quite difficult, you know, you, you it's difficult to find books that actually lay out the specific laws that governed marriage over the centuries when they changed. Um, in my research, I have certainly found that feminist reformers were active throughout the 19th century mm -hmm. and were taken very seriously by all male um, you know, governments. Uh, in changing laws in order to protect women's rights, their right to own property, their rights in divorce, their rights in child custody settlements. Mm. Um, and so it simply isn't true that, that um, male politicians and men in general didn't care about women's well-being in marriage. Right. Men always had in marriage a 
uh, primary responsibility to take care of women's, um, you know, to, to take care of them financially, even if the woman left the husband, he was still responsible for her. He was responsible for all her debts. Many men went to debtors prisons because they couldn't pay their wife's debts in the 19th century and earlier. So the, the idea that women bore the entire burden of marriage right. is simply not true. Many men bore a terrible burden as well. And uh, there's a right. fascinating book on this subject by a man named Ernest Belfort Bax. B-A-X. He's actually mm -hmm. written two books and many articles on the position of men in 19th century British society. He was a barrister. He saw many, many, many legal cases involving husbands and wives and accusations of one against the other. And he wrote a book. Uh, he was also a, a journalist. And he wrote a book in 1896 called The Legal Subjection of men. It was a response to a book by, um, I'm forgetting his name right now. Oh, that's still, I've just had a, a mind blank, but it, it was a response to a book called The Subjection of Women. Oh, I know, by John Stuart Mill, which was published in 1869, in which John Stuart Mill argued that, you know, women were uh, unjustly barred from many areas of society and that they should be granted many more rights and freedoms. So um, Bax was responding to Mill and his argument was that in fact, yes, there was a bias in law, but it wasn't as everybody seemed to believe a bias against women. He believed that there was a bias in law against men, both within marriage and in the society generally. And it is a really, really fascinating book. Uh, he mm -hmm. talks about how many women had, um, they were exempt from many laws. They, they weren't prosecuted for many types of crimes that men were prosecuted for. He talked about the fact that if a woman killed her husband, she would very rarely be convicted of murder because the man's character would immediately be put on trial. He would be depicted as an abusive person who actually deserved to die because of the terrible things he had done to the woman. And he made the point that, you know, in reverse, if a man murdered his wife, there would never be any case of his claiming that he murdered her because she was abusive to him. He made the point that um, a, a man who was physically abusive to his wife, she would be divorced, he would be paying her alimony for the rest of her life. If a woman was physically abusive to her husband, there was no, no there was nothing the man could do about it. Mm -hmm. Even if she set him on fire or, you know, drove over him in her carriage, he could go to the police, he would likely be laughed at, she might be fined, and he would have to pay the fine because, mm -hmm. of course, he was responsible for paying right. her debts. You know, so he goes through and he talks yeah. about the fact that at every stage of the legal process, the woman was treated with far more generosity, empathy, and pity than any man. And whether mm. it was, had to do with whether she was charged in the first place, whether she would be convicted 
of the crime, you know, how she would be represented in court, uh, what, what kind of sentence she would receive, how she would be treated in prison, all those types of things. So the, like the inability to take seriously women's criminality, women's violence, women's propensity for cruelty or dishonesty, the inability to take that very seriously, he claimed was a primary feature of 19th century British society and Western society in general. And it seems, Mm -hmm. I would argue that that is still the case today. So our belief that there was this time in the relatively recent past when women were harshly treated and that now, Mm -hmm. you know, things have changed somewhat for the better. No, I think it's true. If at least if Bax is telling the truth and he was a barrister, nobody has come forward to say he was lying in his book. He wrote a later book, by the way, called uh, the fraud of feminism published in 1913, elaborating on some of the same ideas. The, um, the greater empathy that, we tend to have for women has been mm-hmm. a feature of Western societies for, for some centuries at least. Mm-hmm. And I think feminism capitalized on that and it exacerbates it. There's a study by a woman named Sonia Starr, uh, who is a, a professor of criminology that came out in 2012, I believe. And she did an extensive study of what she called gender disparities mm-hmm. in criminal sentencing. And she found the exact same thing that Bax argued was the case, you know, a century earlier, that women receive sentences for the same crimes. If you, you know, sort of try to work out a, a crime with the same degree of mm-hmm. violence involved, the same degree of um, uh, forethought, the same degree of malice, she found that women received sentences that were on average 63% less harsh than those that men received. And she said, again, all through, women are far less likely to be charged. If charged, they're far less likely to be convicted than men. If convicted, they're far more likely to have a suspended sentence with which they serve you know, in the community mm-hmm. rather than serve time in jail. Um, they're far more likely to be uh, exonerated. They're far more likely to to be have their their uh, criminal conviction overturned. Like at every yeah. stage of the legal process, there's there's that greater empathy. So and that was across the Western world, or is in the U.S. Well, she was looking at the U.S., mm-hmm. um, but I, it's certainly true in Canada as well. From from all the research that I've done, mm-hmm. and I suspect it's true in the Western world, but I couldn't say couldn't say for sure. But, you know, the fact that um, men are 95% of the prison population, Mm -hmm. that is quite astounding. And again, we see the uh, sort of internal contradictions in um, general feminist thinking on a subject like this. If you ask a feminist, why are most Nobel prizes awarded to men? They'll say, well, it's Mm because there's gender bias. Right. That's why it's not because men have done more great things that deserve the Nobel prizes, just clear gender bias. But if you say to them, why are there more men in prison? Ah, yeah, right. That's because more men commit crime. Right. So Mm -hmm. sometimes there's gender bias when it's a case that a woman wants to point out that women have been discriminated against. 
But sometimes it's just a case of men do bad things. And when men do bad things, it's because men do bad things. Men are bad. When women do bad things, it's because women are victims of men. Yeah, the hypocrisy. I mean, I I just find that, yeah, so startling. If you put into a Google search attempts to keep women out of prison, you'll find all sorts of articles and programs. I found some in the United Kingdom, certainly in Canada and the United States, saying that we should try to keep women out of prison. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, because when women commit crime, it's usually because they, they, you know, they were abused as children. Uh, they, they were led into their life of crime by a man in some way they were influenced to do what they did because of a man or they were abused by the man. So they were acting in response to that. They, they had childhoods or, uh, their youth was, was one of deprivation or addiction or mental illness. And okay. I, I agree. Probably that is the case in, in at least many instances, but it's also true for men. Mm. Men usually don't just decide one day, hey, I'm going to become a criminal. Uh, some do, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, most also had childhoods of deprivation. Most also suffer from mental illness, addiction, stress, you know, all, all sorts of problems in, in their lives that led them to become criminal, violent fathers or violent mothers, indeed, or or they were fatherless. Mm. So, again, it's this this um, lack of, of, of empathy, right. uh, on men. And in just in general, that is how our society is and was in, in earlier times. As, right. As so women, women are taken less seriously in some cases, but that also means they're taken more seriously in other cases. Yes. So. Or it's sometimes it's nice when you're taken less seriously, mm. you know, yeah. in the sense that your, your criminality, your, your capacity for violence mm-hmm. is taken less seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading some um, accounts of infanticide in the 19th century, and um, one article I was reading by a, a social policy professor at the University of Belfast named Pauline Pryor, she had found in her study of, of 19th century criminality that it was estimated that up to 61% of homicides were of persons under one year old. And the vast majority were committed, those homicides were committed by women. And um, we we know that women are the predominant killers of babies. And uh, and very few of those were convicted uh, in the 19th century. Yes, uh, very few were even pursued. You know, it was quite common that the the dead bodies of children would be found in towns and villages. Uh, it was a common crime, and uh, and all male juries simply found it difficult to convict mm-hmm. the often rather pathetic women who were brought forward in the rare cases where they were actually charged Mm -hmm. with the crime because they felt sorry for the women and often not always but but often they were you know they'd had the children outside of marriage so they the men felt sorry for them they felt that they'd been seduced and deceived and abandoned sometimes they had been but women married women killed their children as well and in those cases it was usually the defense was a defense of temporary insanity 
Mm. So far more often women would be sent to, um, you know, a mental health Mm. institution where they would spend a few years and then they would return to society. In some cases, they were able to marry and live quite well after their, the crimes that they had committed. And there's just that general, you know, that, that general unwillingness to see women as, yeah. And we just, we have trouble as a society today. And, and obviously in the past, we have trouble taking that aspect of women seriously their capacity okay. for for violence right. so and sometimes that's very nice for the women you know the like this idea that women weren't taken seriously yeah to some extent it's true um there's an interesting book by a man named tim Golditch called mm-hmm. loving men respecting women and he he makes the point that in general, sorry, the the subtitle of that was the future of gender politics. So loving men, respecting women. And he says Mm -hmm. that in general, throughout society, men get respect, but they don't get love. Women get love, Mm -hmm. but maybe they don't get respect. Right. And his point is that then women have in, in, feminism or maybe just in general society they have looked and they have seen that and 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 you know they look with eagle eyes and they see the advantages of men including that respect and they see only the disadvantages of women but they don't right. see their power as women and they don't see the struggles that men experience and, uh, and, you know, and that's the, the really the fundamental problem with the feminist worldview is that that is all it sees. And, you know, if you take a case like um, the sinking of the Titanic mm-hmm. in 1912, were women not taken seriously during that <laughs> sinking? Clearly, they were taken very seriously. The, the survival rate for women was um, about 75% of all the women on board, whereas the survival rate for men was about 20%. So one in five men survived the sinking and three out mm-hmm. of four women. It would have been even much higher, except that the third class women, the women who were down in the steerage compartments, uh, just simply didn't have a chance to escape because those compartments were flooded almost immediately once right. the iceberg sliced through the, the hull of the, of the Titanic. Uh, of first class and second class women who were on the upper levels, they, they, their survival rate was around 85%. 85 to 90 percent the the policy on board the ship was that women and children were the first ones to go into those lifeboats because women and children's lives matter in a different way Mm -hmm. that and that men that was part of male privilege was also that responsibility to sacrifice for for women and children and to die if necessary and many upper class men there were incredibly wealthy men on board that ship jj astor one of the richest men in the world Mm. um benjamin guggenheim you know names that we still Mm. recognize today uh uh, strauss the owner of macy's department store those men went to their deaths because they were men and that was the the code of chivalry 
So it's hard to see how that was an example of men hating women or having contempt for them or not respecting them. Very few, you know, feminists on board that ship, although this was the time, 1912 was a time of deep agitation about uh, the right to vote. Women were, the suffragettes in England mm -hmm. were setting off bombs and burning country houses to the ground and smashing shop windows because of their agitation for the right, right to vote. And so one of the slogans that came out of the sinking of the Titanic was votes or boats. The idea being you can have votes and you can be equal or you can get the lifeboats in these kinds of tragic situations and the general lifeboat that patriarchy has created for women in Western mm -hmm. societies, you can't have both, right? You know, you have to think seriously about what equality means. But would, Does, would we would the women have uh, got the vote without the suffragette movement? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I, I, I did want to just finish that okay. tie off that Titanic by saying that there were very few women who chose to stay behind. Um, yeah. I don't blame them for that, um, but uh, there was one, uh, Ida Strauss, the, the wife of, of the Strauss, who, who I can't remember his first name right now, I think it might have been Isidore, uh, he, he, the Macy's department owner, she chose mm -hmm. to die with her husband. Very few women made that choice. Right. Um, And I, I'm not blaming them. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, it's it's hard to moralize about a catastrophe like that. Um, no. And I, I'm sure all of us would prefer to live in a society where nobody has to prove their worthiness by dying. Mm -hmm. But only men have ever been asked to do that. Only men right. have been asked to prove their worthiness and their 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 dignity as men by dying, as men are repeatedly asked to do at times of war. And during yeah. tragedies, we always hear about if there's a mass shooting, there's always cases where men will throw themselves onto the bodies of women in order to take the bullets so that the mm -hmm. women will be protected there. I've never heard of a case where a woman throws herself on the body of a man in order to take a bullet. And, you know, it's even ridiculous to say that in a way, because that's just how we are. That is mm -hmm. how we are wired and I've, and I've talked to men who said i wouldn't you know it, it's not that every man on board the titanic wanted to die i'm sure some really desperately wanted to get into those lifeboats and they couldn't they actually uh, employees of the ship actually had pistols in hand to prevent right. men from getting on the lifeboats um, yeah. until they'd been filled by women and children so so this was a it was a law of the sea and many men perhaps went to their deaths feeling horror Others, it seems, went to their deaths feeling that this was the right thing to do. Benjamin Guggenheim sent a message through one of the women who survived to his wife, who was in uh, New York City, saying, I am doing my duty by dying. I am, you know, I'm doing the thing that I know I must do. And I mean, so, so, and, and there isn't a lot of men that deep mm -hmm. um, need to protect and provide for women and children. And Absolutely. women don't have it. Women... Women are evolutionarily programmed to protect ourselves. Um, that's how we ensure the survival of uh, the race, because women mm -hmm. protect themselves and therefore ensure the survival of yeah. their 
children. We have self-sacrifice towards our children, I would say. Yes, we feel that's that true. I, that's a very good point. Yes, when you if you put into Google, man dies saving, you'll find all sorts of cases of men dying, who, saving just perfect strangers. You know, they see somebody in a river drowning, the man will dive in without a second thought and he may himself die to mm -hmm. try to save that person. Women will die saving their own children. Easy. And that is yeah. the, that, that, that's, that's the woman's particular form of self-sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I'm not saying women are bad people. It's just that we are, it seems we are hardwired very differently. And, um, uh, and we just generally, I think men, men feel moved by female distress in a way that women do not feel moved by male distress. In fact, there's some evidence to suggest that women are repulsed by male distress. And that's another one of the factors I think that has contributed to our present moment. It's uh -huh. contributed both to the success of feminism because when women said, hey, you know, we, we are suffering. We yeah. need to be heard. A lot of men listened. Yeah. If men hadn't been interested in women or if men had actually hated women or, or, you know, objectified them or had contempt for them, then none of the feminist movement would ever have got off the ground. And so now to come back to your question yeah. about uh, the suffragettes, <laughs> right. that's a fascinating question. Only the suffragettes in, in the United Kingdom were, you know, got into the kind of level of violence and criminality that they did. And not all suffrage supporting women were violent. Uh, there was a huge split in the movement. In fact, the vast majority of women who were um, advocating woman suffrage did not believe that you should smash shop windows and set off bombs and put sulfuric acid and phosphorus into letter boxes so that when the male postal workers, many of whom themselves did not have the right to vote, when they opened up a letter bag, right. they would would combust when it mixed with the oxygen. I mean, they did terrible things. Yeah. So I think there's a very strong argument to be made that that um, hysteria actually probably maybe contributed to slowing the process of women achieving the right to vote. It certainly didn't do anything to hasten it. Mm. Um, I mean, this is a, it's a fascinating question really in the 19th century, it was generally thought that the right to vote was a privilege that came with it certain responsibilities. And mm -hmm. one of the obvious responsibilities was that, that um, and suffrage activists were often asked about this, the idea that the ballot was a substitute bullet in the sense that politics was war by other means. And if politics broke down, men would have to shoulder the responsibility of putting their lives on the line, whether that mm -hmm. meant whether it was civil war or whether it was you know, war with another country. If, if politics had not been successful at resolving problems, men would have to go to war and risk their lives. Right. So to introduce into that system voters who would never have that same responsibility was actually to introduce a fundamental incoherence into the system. So you would have voters voting for things 
that might bring the country to the brink of civil war or war with another country, and they would never have to bear that responsibility in their own persons. Mm-hmm. So it was thought that, you know, it, that voting was a privilege that came with it, that responsibility. Now that all, you know, in the First World War might have uh, actually confirmed that idea. Uh, hundreds of thousands of men died in the trenches of Europe or were hideously maimed. Mm-hmm. And uh, to, to imagine that a woman who didn't have the right to vote was somehow equally imperiled, equally hurt by that was just a non-starter and yet women did get the right to vote right after the first world war um it's likely that the vote would have been extended to them um eventually uh you know there's the 19th century was a period of democratic reform generally and uh so property and income qualifications that had limited men's right to vote right up until that point i mean that's the thing that almost nobody knows right is that many of the young men who died in didn't have the right to, yeah, yeah didn't have the right to vote uh, well many of them were too young to vote but but right. many of the men because because a 40 percent of british men i don't know what percent of american men but uh the united states had income and property qualifications as well so, so many of those men who went off to war didn't have the right to vote either. And we have this idea that, you know, that there was a period of centuries when all men voted and made the laws and w- women didn't have any rights in that sphere at all. And mm-hmm. it just wasn't the case. It was a much shorter right. period of time when the, the franchise was, was progressively extended to, to more and more men. And mm-hmm. women did have the right to vote at, at local levels. Uh, you know, it was always understood yeah. that women would be involved in their communities. They would do charity work. They voted in school board elections. And, you know, and the idea that women weren't taken seriously, that their contributions didn't matter. I mean, that's simply not true either, as I found when I was doing my research on women writers. Right. Women were involved in the public sphere as um, moral leaders, uh, as poets and novelists and journalists. Uh, One of the women that I studied, Sarah Jeanette Duncan, uh, became a journalist in the early 1880s. Uh, She she published um, in many newspapers. She worked for the Washington Post at one point. And as a very young woman, she, she said that the 1880s was a golden age for girls, full of new possibilities and challenges. 1880s. 1880s. Because what I hear often is that women didn't have a voice until now and that they have to step out of the way to sort of make, because that's just righting a wrong. Yes, exactly. And and it just isn't true. They did have voices. You know, they, 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 they spoke out on many of the major issues of their day and were centrally involved, uh, whether that was the abolition of slavery. A lot of women who became feminists had been involved in the movement for the abolition of slavery in the 1830s and 1840s. They spoke out about you know, all sorts of issues, public schooling, especially issues having to do with children and the... the uh, the importance of, of 
you know, clean milk and clean water. Uh, they spoke out on issues of cruelty to animals. They, they were very involved in the temperance movement, which was involved in, in prohibiting the manufacture and sale of alcohol. You know, women had many, many public roles. And so to imagine that they were voiceless, as we hear so often, mm -hmm. women didn't have a voice. Oh, they did indeed. And many people argued that the fact that women didn't have the right to vote didn't in any way lessen their power. In fact, there's a fascinating book by a man named Brian Harrison about opposition to the right to vote. And a lot of women, you know, were, were involved in the anti-suffrage movement. More women did not want women to have the right to vote than wanted women to have the right to vote, which is a fascinating issue on its own. Oh, and, really? and yeah, yeah, they were, yeah. there were all sorts of anti-suffrage societies in the what 19th century. Well, they, they, they said that they believed fundamentally that women and men had separate spheres of influence and power. And that to have women um, begin to be involved directly in politics was a mistake. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they felt that men and women operated best when they controlled their separate sphere. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot, there were basic concerns about how, how many women were actually interested enough in politics mm -hmm. to cast uh, an intelligent vote. And again, uh, women did vote in local elections and school board elections, you know, and things that they were especially interested in. And there was a concern that, um, you know, that women would vote, would, would, it, would vote emotionally and would tend to vote for, um, would, would prefer safety over individual liberty, would vote to make government larger, um, would vote mm -hmm. for schemes that would involve the necessary increase in taxation because it would increase the role of government. It would increase busybody politicians' involvement in people's lives. Like a lot of the things that people that say it. today mm -hmm. uh, were, you know, being said in in you know in that period as mm -hmm. well. So um, yeah, so it was a very interesting All debate. Right. And, uh, and and yes, yeah, some some people said that the fact that women didn't have the vote didn't mean they didn't have political power because and, and Brian Harrison points this out there were all sorts of reform movements in the 19th century about women's increased access to higher education mm -hmm. about rights in marriage about rights in divorce uh, about women's health initiatives and and uh, Harrison points out that there wasn't a single major reform movement that women were involved in, there wasn't a single one that didn't pass, even with an all-male parliament. And many people argued that the fact that women weren't directly involved in politics, they didn't have party loyalties, mm -hmm. that actually meant that they, you know, they, they could come forward as a non-partisan voice, and that that gave them greater moral authority and authenticity than they would otherwise yeah, have. And, you know, and also, I think a lot of women felt that the women who were agitating for the vote were, were women who didn't like men. Mm -hmm. that it really wasn't even about the vote. It was about animosity mm -hmm. towards men. And it would cause a wedge, a, divide, a, you know, a, a dividing wedge between the sexes. And that it was better to imagine that the or, be, or better to to insist that male voters 
had to vote on behalf of their entire family and community rather than to pit women and men against one another as, as right. you know many anti-suffragists were worried yeah. would happen and you know it's hard to yeah. it's hard to argue that that hasn't happened and even mm -hmm. now like if you do polls of men and women most women are still not very interested in politics they tend when they read newspapers or uh, we don't have newspapers so much anymore but read news online women like there's a 20 to 30 point gap between men's interest in national and international politics and in economic affairs and that kind of thing women tend to be more interested in in um you know human interest stories yeah. things like that narratives right uh you know rather than the the hard facts that right. one could argue are necessary to to make an informed choice at the polling booth so yeah, yeah. <laughs> but since we are on the voting now there's this uh, red pill community that's come out now and uh there's there is a backlash and yeah uh, yeah so for example this um character Andrew Tate he's at representing some of these views um and they're voicing loudly should should women have the vote uh, is there is there any limitations to anti-feminism would you say what are your thoughts around this this community and what they they stand yeah. for yeah yeah i mean i i i'm not intimately familiar with with all of the various um you know websites that where red pill discussions go on in general i i like the idea of the red pill which of course comes from the movie the matrix and it's that right. idea that oh, if you take well. the red pill you know all of a sudden you see uh you see what you hadn't seen before you you see truths that have been hidden you see uh that um society doesn't necessarily function in the way you've been promised it mm -hmm. functions and for young men especially i think it, it's it's the idea that that uh what you're taught in school and what the media tells you about um your being a man and what you owe to others and uh um your privilege as a man allegedly that all those things are false and that you need to do your own research and look with your own eyes and and you know to and to recognize that in fact we live in a society that sees men as disposable and that is quite willing to to use men's labor and men's uh inventiveness and men's tax money you know and and exploit men and uh, and in fact quite harshly punish them in in some situations so that in that to that extent i i think it's uh it's a movement that i support very strongly i do think that that I, I, I'm amazed actually that men have taken what has happened to them, you know, for so long, so, so mildly, mm -hmm. like even just on the, the subject of affirmative action, right. which you touched on with, with, you know, women being owed these things and needing a sort of a helping hand because they've been held back for so long. Um, like what a what a strange idea that yeah. men living today who never discriminated against any person weren't responsible for any laws from the past or any practices in the past that may or may not have discriminated against women that they should have to pay in their own lives mm -hmm. to advantage women i mean it's it's a 
a bizarre ideology of collective vengeance, essentially, uh, collective retribution against people who are not themselves guilty of anything, yet have to bear in their own persons the reputed sins of their forefathers. Um, I, I, I find that astounding. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't know how I am disadvantaged as a woman because 80 years ago, a woman was paid less than a man or because 150 years ago, I didn't have the right to vote or, you know, whatever right. the particular fact of discrimination may or may not be. Um, so I, I find that whole idea just bizarre. And uh, I, this is a subject really close to my heart because I was hired essentially on an equity ticket in 1999 when I went on the job market after I had my PhD and I did a postdoc fellowship. I was shortlisted for two positions uh, and, and at the University of Saskatchewan uh, where I did get the job and at another university and I was part of all female shortlists in both cases. Hmm. And I knew that the men that highly talented dedicated, ambitious men that I had gone to school with were at a disadvantage. And I realized then, and I've since researched it, that's been going on for decades. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it, it was illegal. It was made illegal to discriminate against women in employment in the late 1960s and affirmative action practices were brought in in the early 1970s. They've been going on for all that time, generation after generation of men have had to recognize that their career ambitions are limited as a result of legalized discrimination against them right. as men, especially as white men. Um, wow. I mean, I just, I find that, staggering yeah it makes um, so very angry from an yeah, action I mean, i've wow. seen it so many patients who really they just know they'll never be promoted because there are women next to them mm -hmm. yeah uh, i mean that it's that is a recipe mm. for ill will obviously deep resentment and anger totally justified on the part of those men um how society can you know, adapt to the draining away of talent, the ignoring of merit, the promoting of people into positions, not because they earned it, mm -hmm. but because of their identity category. I mean, it, it's terrible. And it's also, I think, does a terrible disservice to women. We don't do women any, any, um, what's the word? We, we, favors. we uh, yeah, exactly. who, who wants to be that kind of hire, who wants to be promoted yeah. simply for for, B, for, for an gender. accident of birth, you know, and, and I mean, I've, I have had to live with that knowing that, I mean, I think I was good, but I can never know for sure that mm -hmm. I was actually the best. I, at, once I was hired at the university of Saskatchewan, my department uh, was involved in a series of hires over the next four years that I taught there. Then I went to the university of Ottawa. Um, and 
affirmative action was practiced in every case. We called it equity hiring because affirmative action, I think, was tainted by then already. But it was the same thing. It meant that you were looking to hire somebody from one of the designated groups, person of color, woman, person with disability. It all ended up being women in that in that case. And the men who applied for those positions were never told, don't bother. But that was essentially it. No matter how talented, how well qualified, we were bound and determined we were going to pursue our equity initiatives. Mm -hmm. And we didn't even admit it to ourselves. Like the level of dishonesty throughout, you know, small companies, larger companies, corporations, um, government contractors, universities, certainly, we we would never have admitted that men didn't have a chance, but they didn't. They were right. they were wasting their time applying there. They mm -hmm. would be put into a separate pile, and some excuse would be made why this incredibly talented man with two books published with esteemed university presses, why his resume was less impressive than a woman with one article published on an obscure subject. And we make up excuses about how, oh yeah, she's doing really cutting edge work, whereas his is more standard or, you know, she, she brings something to the department that he doesn't. It wasn't even true. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, once you have decided that you are going to um, fulfill this unimpeachable social, social purpose, you can make up any reason to do so. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I was just staggered by the injustice. So right. the the you know so the fact that there is now a reaction and sometimes an angry and an ugly reaction. I don't even yeah, think it's too you know I don't even think it's too affirmative action. I, I think it's it's I think it's mainly to the problem of marriage. A lot of men are now feeling that they right. don't they go their they own way. Yeah, like they don't even like marriage has become so dangerous for men. And also so difficult to attain. Mm -hmm. A lot of men still want to get married. That's the thing I'm always struck by is that a lot of men, they, that's what they want. They want to, they want to meet somebody, love her, marry her, have children with her, provide for her. That's what they want. And, but they don't feel like they can do it. And it's too dangerous because at any point she can say, I'm done with this. And you're never going to see me and your children again. And they're going to pay for maybe the rest of their lives for the family that they don't even have anymore. Right. And uh, and that's not even to count, you know, the possibility of a false allegation of abuse, something that can just destroy that's, them. Absolutely. Right. And it gets so terrifying for them. And so they, they, they feel bitter and I don't blame them. Yeah. Uh, I hear, I hear that. But I think as a, as a mother, I want, I I don't want that bitterness for my for my sons. Just as I don't want my daughter to grow up with that kind of bitterness towards men, I want them both happy and settled in a marriage. And to that effect, I want them to uh, yeah be able to maneuver this mm. this uh, this. There's a minefield yeah. that my sons will will meet. Maybe you could give some tips to uh, how you can diffuse it, how you can help them if they uh, step on a mine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the hardest, you know, to say, like, how do you counter a society wide type of bigotry that tells young men, you know, from the time they're boys mm -hmm. that, that 
there's something wrong with them and, and that their sisters are morally superior, that they should take a step back and have their sisters go forward because their sisters are going to do so much better at leading, you know, their right. societies into the future. And, um, you know, all of the strangeness about any kind of romantic sexual interaction, you have to have affirmative consent for everything. You can hurt a woman, even just by looking at her, even just by patting her on the shoulder or giving her a hug uh, or look, you know, just staring at her mm -hmm. for a few seconds. All of those are now defined as forms of potential sexual harassment or mm -hmm. even sexual assault. Uh, I mean, it, it uh, yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, I, I don't have very good um, advice to give, except that you talk about those things. And I mean, I would definitely want to tell boys and young men that, that, it needs to be emphasized that this idea that because of alleged abuse in the past, that they have to somehow pay for that, mm -hmm. whether it's just in being ashamed, you know, apologizing for their maleness, or not taking jobs, not taking promotions, etc. Like that is wrong. Collective punishment is wrong. It's led to the very worst of outcomes throughout human history. And, and I would really want to emphasize that, that that is wrong. No, no person should have to pay for the imputed sins of their forefathers. And how can I help them spot the, the women who, who haven't been influenced mm. by this feminist ideology? How can I sort of guide them towards because yeah. there are those and I, I don't yes. think I think many women aren't conscious of these attitudes even that they mm -hmm. really do believe that they've been disadvantaged they really yeah. and they don't wouldn't consider themselves feminists but no that's the worrisome thing is that because uh, yes even those who have maybe never read a feminist uh Tractor. I mean, it's in popular culture now. Uh, it, it, you know, it's everywhere that sense that women are owed, and it's a terrible, it's a moral hazard. I think for mm. for young women that the the sense of entitlement. I mean, we talk about entitlement and privilege when when we talk about young men, but it, I think it's really women who are uh, falling victim to that, and it, it's a terrible thing. I think for one's character. Uh, it's yeah. It's I guess. Um, and uh, I would just encourage, I would encourage boys and young men to really strongly believe that they matter as, as individuals and that anyone who, any female person who makes them feel that somehow uh, they're not owed the same level of respect or compassion or uh, claim to dignity that, that anybody who suggests that to them mm -hmm. is, 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 is a, that, that that's a red flag. That's, right. I think that would be the main thing I would say, because I do think a lot of boys now are growing up feeling that they don't matter very much. They're being taught by teachers who literally believe in some cases that they don't matter as much yeah. or, or who believe they're so privileged in the outside world that all the attention 
should go to helping the girls and right. giving them that, yeah. you know. And the girls boost. only hear, you know, you can do anything you want. You could, I mean, I know yeah. this from my own experience, you could, oh, you go, you just, just encouragement all the way, 100%, no matter what. And there was never any sort of, yeah, I mean, you know, one day you're going to become a mother and then things are going to change for you. That was never something that that I heard or one day you're going to want to do things for your husband you know that to further the family that was never this sort of uh, you know encouraging and supporting a husband was never something I was taught what do you think that yeah. does to to girls yeah I think it's dangerous because it does contribute to um, a kind of selfishness and then I think ultimately to a, a, a deep disappointment when one realizes that some wonderful life opportunities that most women have throughout history taken great satisfaction and delight in having, such as the opportunity to, to care and, and support one's family, um, that those opportunities are lost. Mm -hmm. And it's, yes, it's, it's very worrisome. And um, I remember... Uh, and just, you know, meanness too. I mean, those are things that damage your own spirit too. Because I, I remember uh, a father telling me that his, his little boy at age six one day came home and said that on the playground, a girl had come up to his son and had said, I can hit you, but you can't hit me. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, you know, and it's like, yeah, that's true. And uh, that's true at that age. And it's true uh, in relationships. And that it's, that's not a good thing for uh, either the girl or the boy. Well, it's particularly mm -hmm. not good for the girl, I think. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I have a friend who uses the metaphor that in any relationship now between a man and a woman, the woman has a metaphorical loaded gun in her bedside table. And she knows that she can use that gun with impunity mm -hmm. and he, he can't. And even if neither person ever, you know, is going to activate that reality, even if the woman is not even going to threaten to use the gun, the gun could be an allegation or whatever it happens to be, it could be physical violence that the man can't respond to it, just knowing that it's there and that there is that radical inequality before right. the law and before public yeah. opinion, that radical inequality damages the potential for really healthy, trusting relationships. And that's sad for, for both sexes. So I guess all we can do is hope that more and more women and men are going to reject the damaging ideology. And I think it is starting, you know, I do think, I mean, those Pearl Davis, you know, just pearly things, supposedly mm -hmm. the female Andrew Tate. Um, you know, she's, I don't know how many uh, young women are in her audience. She has a huge audience. I don't know if it's primarily young men. Um, yeah, I just see her alienating a lot of women who, mm -hmm. yeah. because we're the ones who talk to our kids and we need to focus on the next generation I think and yeah. um, using that sort of rhetoric you know saying that there's God then there's men then there's women that I, I don't think I would uh, help my sons if I told them that I see a lot of right. boys now that they they listen to these figures and and they turn hateful we need more confidence yeah. I, that's why I think you are so amazing to speak on these issues that it's very sort of based on, on reason and, and facts. 
Yeah. And I think just the idea of mutual recognition and respect, I mean, that, mm -hmm. that should be yes, the, exactly. the, the watchword. And my sense, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm hopeful. Like, I think, I don't know. I mean, I could be wrong. I could have a romantic idea because I've spent so much time now talking to anti-feminist men and my sense of anti-feminist men is that, you know, they are ready to lay down the weapons. They are ready to end the gender war and just, you know, go forward into the future as equals, recognizing that men and women, girls and boys are different and working out how those differences are going to manifest in a society where everybody's going to make some sacrifices and everybody hopefully is going to have their needs met. Right. And I, so I'm, I'm hopeful. Like, I think that even boys who are angry and who are, are turning off, they are ready to be won back and they're mm -hmm. not very interested. I don't know any young men who are interested in, you know, being dominating and being, you know, misogynistic right. or anything like that. They are ready to have happy functioning well, uh, relationships yeah. with women, yeah. whether as friends or as lovers, uh, you know, however, a lot of them, as mm -hmm. I say, do want to get married and have children and provide for their families yeah. and all of that. So yeah, I think if we can win some women and there are women out there that living a life of resentment and loneliness in some cases and um you know powering yourself with your victim mentality I, that that is not the best way to go mm -hmm. i snapped out of it so i hope that other people will um yeah. you know because i realized that it was just not true that is right. not the the story of men men have not simply been interested in oppressing women so i do hope that more women will put themselves in especially in young men's shoes and realize that it is wrong yeah, to try to pass yeah. on that sense of guilt. Yeah, that's very nicely put. Thank you so much.